So today, uh, the title of the message is "Testify." So we're still in with the, we're still with that series on Telios, and uh, the title is "Testify" or to speak or to prophesy. Uh, that's basically where we're going. So, got feedback on this? Should I? Should you? Hey, Brandon, can you turn that towards uh, all the babies? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Evan, can I uh, go a little lower in volume? Because if I shout, it'll be really shouty. And I have a feeling I'll be shouting at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Let the baby sleep right now. I'll catch them halfway through. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, can you increase it a little? Uh, whatever makes me feel like I'm loud enough. Just the monitors, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Evan. <laughs> Silence in the gallery. Unruly part of the church, eh, that? Okay, so guys, post-COVID, we are heading into a time of Revelations 9, 20 to 21. Uh, so some of these things I'm saying are being said from an Isekar or a prophetic point of view. Uh, so this is one of those statements, that post-COVID, the earth is heading, or the globe, or the world we live in, is heading into a time of Revelations 9, 20 and 21. So things are not, uh, th this hasn't been uh, a moment that has sobered the earth. If anything, the earth um, continues with its ways of living. And so it says in verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of the, their murders or the shedding of innocent blood, their magic arts or occult and witchcraft, uh, their sexual immorality or perversity, or their thefts. And so, if anything, this cycle, just like in the wash cycle in your washer, will get more intense uh, and we had talked about this when COVID first started. If you go to the messages in March and April, we talked about how some of these things would in increase after COVID, not decrease. And unfortunately, that's the context in which we find ourselves. So this is the context that Acts 29 and churches around will have to play a central role in. We've been talking about how the church is not peripheral to the world, but is central and that the world is peripheral to the church. And whenever the world has a central, whenever the church has a central role to play, remember, it is in the context of greater darkness. So just as Daniel stood in Babylon, just as John stood in Patmos against the Roman Empire, just like Paul stood in the midst of Ephesus, just as Moses stood in the middle of uh, Egypt, just as Elijah stood in the center of Israel that was had turned away from God. So the context of the church playing a central role is in the context of Revelations 9, 20 and 21, where idolatry, the shedding of innocent blood, occult and witchcraft, sexual perversity and thefts will increase. This is the matrix into which God is asking Acts 29 to step in because it'll be global. It'll be here and it'll be other parts of the world. And, um, while we don't rub our hands with glee because of the things we are stepping into, we do rub our hands with glee because this is exactly where Christ makes himself known splendidly. Um, so in a situation like this, part of the governmental makeup of a church, which we've been discussing, is to behave like uh, the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Part of the governmental makeup of the church, and we talked about this for the last two weeks, is to behave like the two witnesses in Revelations 11. If you go to Revelations 11, 3 to 13, and I'll probably park here for the next two weeks, we've been talking about how the church must be the government of God on earth, that we should be the government of God on earth. And so uh, we've kind of begun describing what it looks like, 
And I'm saying to you, one of the essential makeups of a governmental church is to behave like the two witnesses of Revelations 11, 3 to 13. So I'm reading Revelations 11, 3 to 13. And here's what it sounds like. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed, the third woe is soon coming. So the, the two witnesses isn't necessarily two prophets that will turn up. It is the nature of the church. How do we know that? Because in Zechariah, it talks about the olive and the, the olive uh, trees and the lampstand. And it is a picture of the church. We'll talk about that later, but many things will come out of this simple 10 verses with regard to how can the church be governmental? What does it mean to be clothed in sackcloth? What does it mean to stand before the Lord? What does it mean to judge the earth? What does it mean to be like Elijah or Moses? What does it mean to finish your testimony? What does it mean to be persecuted? What does it mean to be revived again? We'll talk about this over the next two weeks. But today, with regard to the witnesses, all I want to say is that there's two things that are distinct about them. They stand before the Lord. And two, they speak on his behalf. And that's the second half is what we'll be looking at mostly. These are two distinctives of these two witnesses, which I'm saying is a type of the church. If a church wants to be governmental, and the church must be governmental because Christ is head over all things. Christ is head of the church. Christ fills the church with his presence. Christ speaks through the church. Christ acts through the church. Therefore, if he is head over all things and he is head of the church and he speaks and acts and fills the church, the church has a pivotal role to play in the affairs of the earth because Zion is a people through whom God issues decrees. We've gone over this before. I'm just going it over Again, so that I'm used to it. Guys, the reason I repeat these things without even looking at my notes is because I've got to be so well-versed in what I've been talking about so that I know it by heart. So I always have a reason for what I do. Do you have a reason for what you do? Do you have a reason for what you say? Do you have a reason? It is one thing to believe. It is another thing to have a reason for your belief. And the reason must be scriptural. It can't even be interpretation. It has to be simple scripture. Which is why it's important to keep repeating it till you know it. So, one of the things about the, two, about the church is that, about a governmental church is that it stands before the Lord. It stands before the Lord. I love the fact that uh, there is no speaking on his behalf till there is a standing before him. There is no speaking on his behalf till there is a standing before him. And to stand before him, on one hand, God makes you righteous so you can stand before him. On the other hand, Psalm 24 is critical if you want to stand before him. It's a mixture of Psalm 24 plus Hebrews 10.22. We'll go over each one so you know what it takes to stand before him. To stand before him, Psalm 24. 
It's almost, uh, you have to think of yourself as one invited to the wedding feast. On one hand, everybody sitting here has been invited to sit before him. On the other hand, having received the invitation, you have to come to the wedding feast dressed a certain way. Nobody is exempt from the wedding feast. Everybody is welcome. But now that you have come, here is how you need to dress. There's a protocol. And so Psalm 24 gives you the basics of what it takes to stand before God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those that seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And so standing before him requires that now that I've been invited, that if I want to stand in the holy place, I have clean hands and a pure heart, and my soul is not dedicated to any form of idolatry. By idolatry, I don't mean actual uh, pagan idols. It could be idols that I've shaped with my own hands, or swear by what is false. These are allowed to stand before God. And if you fall, there's Hebrews 10.22. And if you fall, there's Hebrews 10.22. Go to Hebrews 10.22. Hebrews 10.22. Let's start at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. The great thing about falling and standing before God is that the falling and the standing before God has less to do with you and absolutely everything to do with his faithfulness. Even 1 John 1.9 brings it out so brilliantly. He is faithful and just. It is not even my confession of sins that makes me, uh, gives me permission to stand before him again. It is that he is faithful and just. What is required of me? Jacob, can you please come to me with a sincere heart? Because I know your insincerity. I also know your sincerity. Can you come to me with a sincere heart? This is what allows us to stand before him, eh? But today I want to look at what does it take to speak on his behalf, to speak, testify, prophesy on his behalf. There's no one who's actually exempt from government because there is no one who is actually exempt from the church. If you're here and you're the people of God and God intends to use the church as a means to act, speak and fill, then nobody is exempt. Press into this. It's something that the Lord longs for. You know, evangelists have been restored to the church. Teachers have been restored to the church. Pastors have been restored to the church. Prophets have been restored to the church. Apostles have to be restored to the church. But the one thing that is yet to be restored to the church is the governmental nature of the church. It is the next thing that will happen. The equippers have now been restored to the church. Now the church will learn how to be equipped to issue decrees as God sees fit that can affect the territories that are given to you. You would have no problem thinking about this if you were actually elected. Let's assume that you're in this area and this is Langara and you are standing for elections and by some strange way you get elected as the new MLA from Langara. You would have no problems believing that you would have an influence in the affairs of this area. The Defense Minister of Canada is actually the MP from this area, Sajan Singh. He makes policy with regard to weaponry, with regard to when you go for war, when you don't go for war. I must believe that Jesus Christ, if he says that the church is governmental and is supposed to affect territories around me, that I actually will begin to believe that. 
Because if I can believe that of Sajan Singh, I must believe it of Jesus Christ. Could you for a moment take your eyes of your own little problems, which are big in your eyes, but could you take your eyes off your little problems and believe that just because your little problems aren't yet solved doesn't mean that Christ cannot use you to affect territories, nations, regions. Between yesterday and today, I was sitting down and writing down the people, the nations, the regions that have been affected by my simple obedience. Simple obedience. Nothing fancy. Simple obedience of going and speaking. And I'm fascinated as I put the list down. We'll get there. The way God has us testify, prophesy, and speak in the present is by first showing us the end. Because the present is really ugly. The end is very different from where things are at. What God has as a picture of the end is very different. I mean, look at Eliana. You think her end will be like this? Do you know what a beautiful end this child has? We have no idea. Right now, all she can do is eat, sleep, poo. ESP. Eat, sleep, poo. Yeah. But... Just one sec. Yeah, so... You have to see the end from the beginning so that you can work towards it. One of the things that will happen with Eliana is that she'll sense things early. She'll sense things early. You know, you have this AVAC planes, A-W-A-C. Uh, you see them when you're going to SeaTac. There are these planes with big round umbrella-like things over. And AVAC basically means early warning and control. And one of the things that will happen with this child is that... She, She'll have the ability to sense things early, and that's a good part where she'll be ability, she, the ability to sense situations, sense people before she's actually in the situation, before she knows people. Even at a young age, she will know who to approach, who not to, the kind of people and the kind of situations she can and she can, cannot step into. The, the, the so-called negative part of it is that Eliana will try to control outcomes because she knows what awaits. One of the things Matt and Rachel will have to learn how to do is help her not to be controlling so that she lets things happen. Another thing about this child is that she'll take up causes. She'll take up causes and she'll escalate these causes rapidly because she'll have a skill to assemble people. If she and her brother are standing in a group of 10 people, her brother will have a different skill set. But this girl will have 10 people eating out of her hand very easily. You'll see this when she grows up. You'll see it in a couple of years. She'll know how to escalate causes very rapidly. It might be save the ants or something. Or the termites. But she'll know how to get a whole group of people together to save the termites. So on one hand, that is a huge advantage. Criticism will be water off a duck's back for this child. You can criticize her and she'll say, One of the things that the parents will have to watch out for is that she will know how to change an atmosphere by deflecting or blunting what was meant to harm. And she'll step into situations early in life where she can walk into a room that is tense, where there's a lot of fighting going on, argument, and she has this amazing ability to walk into a room and deflect or blunt the harm in the place so that the atmosphere changes rapidly. If there is a, a beatitude that I would associate with this child, it would be blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Which child is making all this noise? <laughs> the same one I'm talking about? Oh my Lord. This is why I said the end is very different from the beginning. What, God's word associations are very different from ours, eh? What, if I, if I called out this word, let's see, 
what your word association would be. Army. General, Navy. One more time, let's try. Army. See, but when, if you threw the word arm, army, okay, let's say vast army. Any associations? Surprisingly with God, it is bones. Bones. We, we don't realize how extreme God is. When, 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 when God says army, his association, word association will be bones. Vast army, valley of bones. We don't realize, we haven't realized. We, we get very excited with the shoulder pain disappearing or uh, stuff like that. And it is good. These are critically important things when your shoulder is paining. But we don't realize the, the alpha and omega-ness of this God. And therefore, we, we fall short in government. When, when I see a valley of bones, he sees a vast army. One of the cleverest ploys of the enemy is to help lower the expectation that children can have of everything. So that God is a far cry. So right from when you're a kid, you are forced to lower your expectations. So that you can never ask or imagine Ephesians 3.20. It's out of question. It is a killer. It is a killer. Either your parents help you do that or circumstances just completely lower your expectations. Government is run through seeing ends even though you're in the midst of a valley of bones. So if you go to Ezekiel 37.1, Ezekiel 37.1. Ezekiel 37.1. Ezekiel 37.1. The hand of the Lord was upon me and, me, and he brought me out by the Spirit, and the Lord set me in the middle of a valley. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. So guys, the first thing is, the hand of Yahweh speaks of overwhelming force eh, with which you are seized by God. Whenever the Bible talks about the hand of the Lord is upon me, it's not something casual. It is this overwhelming force with which God seizes someone. And here is a statement I want you to remember because I think it is critical if we can get this. That God seizes those lives. God seizes those lives he can help himself too. He can help himself too. At will. You want the hand of the Lord upon you? Ask yourself this question. Can, is my life the kind of life that he can help himself too? At will. Whenever the Bible talks about the hand of the Lord who's upon me, you will find a character who's gotten to a place where God can help himself to that life at will. We pass quickly past that, the hand of the Lord who's upon me, because we use it so frequently that it loses its meaning. But it is the overwhelming force of God by the Spirit that seizes someone to do something ridiculously impossible. There are four things that you need to surrender if you want to be a man like this. The first one is, I have to surrender who I am. Second one is, I have to surrender where I go. Third one is, I have to surrender what I have. And the fourth one is, I have to surrender what I say. I no longer have the freedom of self-determination when it comes to these four things. Great time to do stuff like this. Is it, if it's your birthday today, man, this, these are some of the things that you can really step into. 
God willing, we'll respond to these four things towards the end of the teaching. But if you want to be, if I want to be a man that God can seize, then I have to be a man who he can uh, help himself to at will. And it requires a surrender of who I am, as in my identity, but be it that my identity come from vocation or from any other thing. Where I go, as in, are my feet willing to go anytime, anywhere, at any cost to wherever he sends me? What I have, as in my security, my money, my bank account, and everything that I have at his disposal. And the last one is what I say, where I cannot amend what he wants me to say. And it doesn't matter how unpopular, how um, contradictory, how at opposition it puts me. These are four things that allows you to become a man on whose hand God, on whose head God's hand can rest because he seizes you. Any questions? Any questions? Any questions? The first thing that God will do when he leads you back and when he leads you into this valley of bones, and so by valley of bones, I mean he shows you where you are presently. And one of the things he does is he wants you to get so accustomed to the reality of your situation. Look at what he does with Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, I'm going to take you to this valley. It was a known valley. It wasn't a random valley. Ezekiel goes to this valley and God doesn't show him a bird's eye view. He puts him in the valley. In the valley, he takes him back and forth. The Bible says, and God took him back and forth. The Spirit of God took him back and forth and around so he could see the bones glistening in the sun. We do not operate with God by avoiding our present reality. We get so used to it that it breaks your heart or it makes you wear sackcloth or it does something to you. That the bones lay on the surface of the valley meant that whoever threw those bodies there meant to impose upon those bodies the indignity of a curse because it says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 25 that any man whose body is left to the scavenging birds is a man who is cursed. It wasn't buried. It was just left there. It was an indignity. It was supposed to be a way to make sure that a corpse and the family that the corpse belonged to was cursed. Then God goes on to let uh, Ezekiel know, hey Ezekiel, do you realize that these bones are extremely dry? They've been here far too long. They are long dead with no life force in them, hopelessly dead. And while he's showing Ezekiel the reality of his situation, God's doing something else. And please understand this. I'll go over this again if you need to. This is the way God operates. He shows you a very dead situation that isn't showing any life. He shows you the ins and outs on it. He exposes it. He brings it to the open. And as you look at it, he at the same time begins to show you the end. It is not one or the other. In verse 5 and 6 of 37, you realize that as God is taking him through the valley, up and down the bones, he's also showing him, hey, this will live, this will live, this will live, this will live. This is the way God operates. You've got to think like this. Take any situation in your life which is a valley of bones now. Indignity, curses, bondages, unbroken, continuous, long dead, hopeless, glistening in the sun, bleached, irretrievable. And as he begins to show you the condition of those bones, he is also saying, let me show you what's going to happen. Let me show you what's going to happen. It is at the same time. What happens with us? I may it not happen with this church. This church is far too grown up to go through this again and again and again. And if you do go through it, snap out of it quickly by asking for help. And so, while he's showing you the bones, he's also showing you the end from the beginning. He does this in Deuteronomy chapter 9. You would think to yourself, how could you do this, O oh God? Deuteronomy chapter 9. Look at how it starts. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1 to 3. Verse 1 and 2, uh, let me show you the bones. Verse 3, let me show you the end. This is not at all inspiring. 
Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan. Hallelujah, they start shouting. To go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Now they're beginning to pant and shiver. The people are strong and tall, Anakites. You know about them. And if you don't know, then let me tell you what I have heard about them. Who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured that today the Lord your God, the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire, he will destroy them, he will subdue them, you will drive them out, you will annihilate them as the Lord has promised you. It is this thing where God always shows you this is what the true reality is, Jacob. But as I'm showing you this true reality, can you just look up and can you see what I have in store? Can you see what I have in store? Problem with the church is you keep looking down and you see nothing changing. You have to see the end before the present changes. You have to see the end before the present changes. Otherwise, you don't even know what you're expecting change as. You don't even know what, you, what, what to expect as change. Let him show you what he can do. Let him show you what he can do. Otherwise, your expectations are at best slightly better than mine, which is like pointless. This is what Abraham did. He knows that he's in a tent. He knows that he's left his clan country. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 9 or thereabouts. While he knows that, God is also saying, listen, I know you're on a journey from the Ur of Chaldees. You've come out. You've left everybody behind. You even left Lot behind. And I know you're journeying. You look at your tent and you think to yourself, is this what I bargained for? But let me show you. Let me show you the end. And Abraham looks and he sees a city that an architect has built, a city that is indescribable, a city that no hands have made. And he suddenly is filled with enough moxie to see through. You might think that this is just uh, a fancy way of putting it. But one of the reasons Jesus endured the cross was for the joy that was set before him. And part of it was the father's joy. Part of it was to see the joy of me and Jeremy, Isaac and Sue and Blessie and Eva and Echo being, drawn, Echo being drawn back to the Lord. You must understand that it is that kind of end picture that allows you to keep marching towards it. What is your end picture for what you are at present completely embedded in? You've been embedded in it for years. So much so that you smell of it. People have to go by and they know the aroma they can get off you as they walk by because you've been so embedded in it. It is easy for a preacher to stand here and say stuff like this. But there is a God who wants you to think like this where you begin to see the end picture. So what if you're not alive to see it? You will see the end picture even if you're not alive to see it. I have an end picture for the church. I'm not talking about Acts 29. I have an end picture for what the church will look like in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I dreamt what I see right now. I dreamt what I see when Jane leads worship. I dreamt what I see when Jeevan does Nandigama. I dreamt when I, what I see when Karen and Sue come to preach, uh, come to pray. I, I, I dreamt this. I dreamt this when we were two people. I dreamt nations, I dreamt nations, I dreamt kings, I dreamt rulers, I dreamt the changing of territories, I dreamt the taking of nations. Why am I so excited? Because God is faithful. But I must see the end picture. And 20 years from now or 30 years from now, I still know what the end picture is. And 30 years from now, if I am not alive, it does not matter because I have seen the end picture. And I will have enough faith to bring it to pass even if you bury me. You got to see the end picture. Other religions do. Other religions plan 100 years in advance so that the balance of power will shift. So that certain nations that they used to rule over will come back into their territory. Hundred years, they don't mind waiting. They'll die for it, but they will wait to see. Hundred years from now, the same rulers who once used to rule certain parts of Europe and certain parts of Asia, their hope is that it will come back again. Companies plan 
far beyond their founders. And while he's showing you the end from the beginning, here's something else he does which is so, so um, godish, but so um, sneaky is not the word. So I don't know the right word. As you wrestle through the contradiction of where you are at and what the end picture is, God begins to ask you a question and the question is, can this happen? Can this happen? Can this happen? And he expects a reply. So while he's showing him the value of bones, he's also showing him the end picture in verse 5 and 6. And yet he's also asking Ezekiel a question. question. Hey, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? Do you think these bones can live? Do you think these bones can live? He's showing you the end picture. He's also showing you the present. And even though he's showing you the end picture, he's deliberately asking you a question. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel tries to get out. He tries to disengage. He says, oh, you know, God. And God will not settle for a disingenuous reply like, oh, whatever you will, oh, God. Oh, you know, oh, God. He does not allow that. He wants to hear whether what I have shown you is enough for you to believe, Jacob. And what, are your, what, what are your words now? What does your mouth speak? And initially, Ezekiel's reaction is, oh, you know, Lord. And God doesn't let him get away with that. A disingenuous reply like, only you know, God, or your will be done, won't cut it. He asks a question expecting a reply. Die speaking what God has shown you so that the ones you are speaking it about will live. And once he begins to see that Ezekiel is moving away from whatever you will, O God, to I will do what you command. Now, he says, call the dry bones to attention on my behalf. Guys, this is what government is about on my behalf on my behalf i want to do things on his behalf i want to be the one who fills the room with his presence because he fills the church with his presence i want to be the one who acts on his behalf because he acts through the church i want to be the one who speaks on his behalf because he speaks through the church on his behalf Call the dry bones to attention on my behalf. On my behalf always starts with simple obedience to a simple command. On my behalf always starts with simple obedience to a simple command. It does not start in some profound way. It is simple obedience to a simple command without any need to understand. Without any need to understand. That goes beyond your limitations. Your limitations are not going to prevent you from obeying. Your limitations begin to disappear as you obey and take one step, one step, one step. That is when leprosy disappears. That is when water holds you up. Water holds you up and lepers begin to get cleansed as you begin to walk because everything that you do on his behalf starts with one simple act of obedience to one simple command. I can reel off simple commands that I obeyed. Go to Jakarta even though you're flying to Bahrain. Go tonight to Jakarta. Changes the direction of East Java and the effect that this church had in Indonesia for years, because one simple command to go to Jakarta, to meet the Sultan of Java on a day that he's desperate, to prophesy over him, changes the nature. One simple command, go to Ulan Bator. You don't know anybody there, check into a hotel and wait there. And even today, 
There's a course called the Telios Bible Course that is being done across Mongolia that you guys participated in that has been translated into the language and from one end of Mongolia to the other. Go meet the, um, the person in charge of West Java. Three of us fly there. Simple command. Do not know what is going to happen. Go connect with Jeevan and let Jeevan have the freedom to run so that a 4,000 year old curse that disallows a certain community from buying land is broken and a whole gate or portal now opens for generations and generations. For another thousand years if the Lord tarries of people that were not allowed for 4,000 years now being allowed. What has been permitted in heaven will be permitted on earth when a people decide that they will obey a simple command and act on his behalf and what is forbidden in heaven can be forbidden on earth. I can't... Uh, the re only reason I'm not going to in going into each story is because I've told these stories many times over, many times over. But this government thing is real, and it happens to simple people who obey a simple command on His behalf. But before you do anything, learn how to stand before the Lord, man. God loves restoring physical life, and He loves reviving spiritual life. God loves restoring physical life; He loves reviving spiritual life. This government is benevolent. It restores physical lives. It revives spiritual lives. This government is benevolent. It restores physical lives. It revives spiritual lives. It's the main agenda of this government. It reverses decomposition. I mean, those bones have been lying there. It reverses decomposition and it starts restoring flesh. Listen to these words. Audible words spoken into the invisible will eventually burst forth in sight and sound. Audible words. Audible words. Spoken into the invisible. Will eventually burst forth. Will eventually burst forth. In sight and sound. Audible words, words spoken into the invisible will eventually burst forth in sight and sound. God is going to help you and Jaya to distill the way you speak. Distill, as in... Um, where all the sediments that need to be removed from uh, counsel or advice or conversations that you have with people and with each other will be distilled so that every other sediment of the past of a certain way of thinking of a of um, cultural traditional denominational religious uh, intellectual experiential uh, council will suddenly be removed and all that will be left is a pure sediment or is a pure distilled um, um, uh, form of council that God is going to use you both for. You just said you finished your um, 18th anniversary. Well, for the next 12 years till you actually have your 30th anniversary, enjoy advising and counseling those that will say, surely they must have been with Jesus. That is one of the things he wants to do with you. And so be very deliberate about sieving cultural, intellectual, spiritual, uh, denominational, religious, um, experiential sediments so that all that is left is the pure distilled version of God's counsel. And they'll come to you in droves and they'll, their response will always be, these must have spent time with Jesus. Just as they said of the disciples, uneducated bunch of fishermen, these must have spent time with Jesus. This is something God will begin to use you tremendously in. And it will be an ever-enlarging circle. Guys, audible words spoken into the invisible will eventually burst, burst forth in sight and sound. Any questions?
all those incidents that Jeevan mentioned where situations were happening and then we would pray was basically speaking audible words into the invisible and watching results change in two days, in three days. Decreeing what needs to be decreed as the word of God from the church upon territories, upon powers, upon deities, saying release, saying be gone, saying burst forth, saying come forth. Authority and morality go hand in hand, build both up. It's brilliant. And as Ezekiel discovers, suddenly think of being in this um, valley, say somewhere near Grouse Mountain or I, I, I can't remember the last valley I was in. Uh, but look at a valley and think of it full of bones and then think of his words that he's speaking. And as he begins to speak these words, the strangest thing happens. He hears bone begin to rise and knock against bone. And there's a rattling and the bones begin to fit. And it's not a random fitting. It is a very proper fitting as bone finds bone correctly and connects. And even as he watches, sinew and flesh begin to cover it. And these uh, bones now become corpses that begin to come alive. That begin to literally come alive. Ezekiel's never done this before. Sometimes God will take you and put you in a very huge situation or he'll start you with something small. He knows the level of your faithfulness. So don't think you'll start at the bottom of the rung. The kingdom has no bottom rungs. It just has assignments. And these assignments and the domain you have increases with faithfulness. There's no ladder that you have to climb up. But there's faithfulness which allows you to increase your domain. In rapid response to the word Ezekiel marvels as bone rattles on bone fitting properly. And just as it looks like it's going to come together, in verse 8, you see that the whole process is about to collapse and abort because there is no breath in the bones. So imagine these bodies being put together. Suddenly you see your grandfather, you see your nephew, you see your grandmother, you see your great-grandmother, all their bodies restored, flesh coming over their faces. It's like one of those movies where CSI puts back, finds a skull and puts flesh over it, and you know, aha! This looks like Derek. And so it's that kind of a thing. Sorry, uh, sorry, Derek. <laughs> so it's, it's that kind of a sense. But just as you think things are now on the upswing, it looks like it's going to abort because there is no uh, breath in the bones. And this is where we as Christians just do not know how to persist. Persistence is alert discipline and enduring patience. Alert discipline and enduring patience. Persistence. Alert discipline and enduring patience. Alert discipline, as in, I'm not going to back off. I'm alert to this. I know this thing has come together. It suddenly looks like it's going to abort again. But instead of being frightened of that, I'm going to persist because what he has said, I'm fully persuaded can happen. Get up, Jacob. So you don't throw away your confidence because the just shall only live by faith and they shall not live by anything else but faith. Faith that sees, faith that speaks. You know, tomorrow, it'll be 27 years since I came to Canada. I just realized I've lived almost half my life in Canada. But one of the things that happened when I was immigrating to Canada and things looked completely wrong, and I've, most of you have heard that story, is, is that there was one thing that I persisted in with alert discipline and with enduring patience that God said he would bring me to this land. My God will bring me to this land. It didn't matter which pastor I met. It which, didn't matter which prophet I met. It didn't matter which senior Christian I met who came and said to me, use your head. God does use logic. Operate with logic. The continuous declaration on my lips was, but God said, and it must come to pass. And do you know how much this nation has benefited? Do you know how many nations have benefited because of that one stance? You think I couldn't say no and walk away? 
The prophetic and destiny is not inevitable. It is conditional. And the condition is simple. Obedience. You know, one of the things I find not good about this generation of young people is that not too many are finishers. When I look at the older ones here, you realize that one of the things you learned if you're over 40 is that you knew how to finish. This generation is great, to, great in starting stuff. They love starting stuff every third week. But the ability to endure through routine and through the drab and through nothing happening and no recognition and finishing it, man, that is an apostolic Holy Spirit quality. To finish. Desire that more than anything else. To finish. Withstand the mocking spirit. We talked about this yesterday. At the end of the day, I said... No, not at the end of the day. At the beginning of this teaching, I said the title for this teaching is Testify, to speak, to prophesy. Guys, we are so blessed. We are so blessed. I give praise to God. I thank God that this church has in its core DNA the ability to prophesy, the respect for the prophetic, the unction to prophesy, the spirit of prophecy. It was born in this church. It was When this church was born, we were born with that. We don't know, we don't realize how blessed we are that this is a natural part of our being. But we will be called to account and God will come and look at the tree and say, now that you have grown, show me the fruit. And the fruit is no longer personal prophecy. The fruit is, can you prophesy to the nations? I'm pressing this hard on stuff like this because I see the end for us too. And there are different ends. Eh? God shows you an end one year from now. God shows you an end ten years from now. And he would prefer that we finish it in the time frame that he has allotted. So don't stop halfway. Withstand the mocking spirit that says, Great, so you think this can actually happen? Great, so you saw the end picture? How many years has it been, Jacob? 13, 14, 40? How many years? And you hear that mocking spirit. You know, there was a guy called Rab Shake. Don't name your son that, eh? Uh, Rab Shake, Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. He, he reveals something that we need to know. Isaiah 36. Really smart ploy this was. Isaiah 36, verse 2 to 9. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commanders with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commanders stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to Washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. Now remember who Eliakim is. We talked about him last week. Isaiah 22, 22. Eliakim was the guy who had the keys on his shoulders. He carried government on his shoulders. Yet look what is happening to him now. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace uh, administrator, Shebna, the secretary, Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Oi! Which one is it? Man, all the parents are denying that it's their child. Jiva, go show your face, no? <laughs> so, uh, the field commander said to them, Tell has, my God, the very name of Jeevan. Raat ko jab bachcha sota hai, to maa kehti hai, Beta soja nahi, to gabbar a jayega. That's, that's, a, that's, for those who don't know Greek, that's a, that's a dialogue from a Hindi movie. 
where the villain speaks Greek. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pardon? That at night in the village, when the child refuses to sleep, the mum says, child, go to sleep. Otherwise, Jeevan will turn up. <laughs> no, the actual name of the guy is Gabbar. He's like this. He was the most amazing villain that ever existed. Nobody's been like him before. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, we're going somewhere completely different. We've <laughs> Ezekiel 36. I mean, the children have gone quiet. That's good. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, verse 4. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. The point here is, he says to Israel, hey Israel, do you really think that your words can help you? He's trying to take away the only weapon Israel has, words. And then he is using words to intimidate them. But he's taking away the only weapon they, he ha they have. If you read the other versions, it says, do you think your words will amount to anything? Rabshakeh has the ability to come to you and say, Hey, Emily, you've been praying for a while and declaring things. How's it going with you? Hey, Rosalind, how are things changing for you? Hey, Jacob, how long have you been saying stuff? Has anything happened? You think your words will amount to anything? You think your words are weaponry? You think your words are strategy? It's the only thing I have. It is the only thing I have. All I have is words. You know, when I was watching the, uh, looking at the lyrics of the song, So Will I, everything there is words. Just words. So Ezekiel has a valley full of slain corpses, but no breath. And then in the ISV, verse 9 puts it this way. Then he ordered me, Yahweh ordered me, prophesy to the spirit, son of man. Tell the spirit, this is what the Lord God says. Come from the four winds and breathe. I often go and ask the Holy Spirit whenever there's a situation. Spirit of God, so what are you saying? I want to say that. I want to say that. I'll ask the Holy Spirit, what do I need to speak into this situation? What do I need to first see in the situation? And once I see it, what do I need to speak? Two questions that I always ask. Father, what do I need to see in this situation? Father, what do I need to speak in this situation? What I see is what I will speak. Everything in life, is it is the only way to deal with it. Show me another way to deal with it. Please, I'm asking genuinely. Show me another biblical way of dealing things, dealing with things other than going this route. Show me how Jesus did it. Show me how any of the other guys from Joshua, Moses, all the guys in the Old Testament did it. Show me guys in the New Testament. Show me how else they did it other than seeing what the Spirit was showing and he's very willing to show and then speaking what the Spirit is speaking. Show me another way. And it has to be audible. It has to be audible. It's tiring work, guys. He ordered me, prophesy to the Spirit. Son of man, tell the Spirit. So what you're doing is, you're asking the Spirit of God what to say, and then you're agreeing with Him. And after agreeing with Him, you're speaking here. There's this very cool verse in Hosea 2, verse 20 to 22, where God says, I'll answer the skies. The, uh, I'll answer the heavens. The heavens will answer the earth, the earth with rain. The uh, rain will answer the ground, and the ground will produce new oil, wine, and grain. It's this virtuous cycle that begins with God speaking. I will answer the heavens. The heavens shall answer the earth with rain. The rain shall answer the earth and cause grain, new wine, and oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. As in, whatever you sow, that you will get back in 
bountifully. Hosea 2 was 20 to 22. Speak. Your words can transform exceedingly numerous bones into an exceedingly vast army. Speak. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord shakes the earth. The voice of the Lord births new life. The voice of the Lord strips bare. The voice of the Lord rules the waves. Let me go through that again. Psalm 29, verse 3 onwards. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is kingly, royal, majestic. The voice of the Lord shakes the deserts, the earth. The voice of the Lord strips bare that which needs to be broken or dismantled. The voice of the Lord births new things. The voice of the Lord rules over the turmoil or the turbulence of the waves. The voice of the Lord. And then when Jacob begins to agree with the Spirit and begins to say the very things that the voice of the Lord is saying, permitting things here on earth as they are permitted in heaven, forbidding things on earth as they are forbidden in heaven. And as he does three things at the same time, look at the bones, realize they are bleached in the sun. Look at the end picture, realize what God is afoot doing. And then listen to the voice in his ear which says, Jacob, do you think this will happen? Can this happen? Can this happen? And out of Jacob's heart, first from his spirit and then from his heart and then from his mind, comes this resounding agreement with God saying, yes it can. And then I begin to prophesy with the spirit and people change, situations change, families change, bodies change, nations change, regions change, governors are lifted up, kings are brought down, the destiny of nations are shifted. Someone asked me once why I haven't written a book yet simply because I cannot reveal what actually happened. Because I'll never be allowed back into those places again. Because if I put down any name or any place, then I cannot go back there again. Any questions? Sorry? as opposed to um, hearing and obeying yes but uh, one of the things that God requires uh, in the anatomy of faith is believe no first it starts with see believe speak act this is the anatomy of faith if you were to dissect faith it sees or hears and then it believes as in, it's an unshakable conviction which you will not amend, which you will not um, step back from. And then there is a confessing or a speaking of what you believe. Paul said it himself, I believe, therefore I speak. God said it himself in Psalm 60 or 61. Once have I heard it, twice has God spoken. And then there is the acting part of it, which is a preemptive acting in the knowledge that what you have seen, believed, and now spoken will come to pass. So I might as well get going because I know what awaits. Yep. Does sign language fulfill the idea of being audible? Yeah, so symbols sometimes speak louder than words. Symbols can speak louder than words. And so if you want to include sign language and being symbolic, sure. Man, the symbols that Jacob would set up when he knew that Laban was tricking him and his uh, cattle would uh, multiply. The symbols that were set up on the journey through uh, the desert, Abraham's uh, altars, those altars were symbols. They were calling on the name of God or a character of God that would be exemplified over the next phase of the journey or was exemplified in the journey past. Symbols are powerful too. Any questions, guys? You know, in the movie Karate Kid, uh, they make you do that. That's what we're doing here.
I just want you to get so used to speaking. I just want you to get so used to speaking. And occasionally remove your eyes from your personal situations. Your personal situations cannot become the plumb line for the kingdom. My ailment cannot be the plumb line for whether I believe for something profound to happen to 300 people in some other country. I would love for my ailment to be undone too. Oi! Who is this? Ah. Yeah. Eliana is allowed. Yeah. Um, my ailment cannot be the plumb line for my refusal to fully participate in something much greater. Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? Please don't look at your personal situation and opt out because you haven't seen the reality in your life. All that has to happen then is to preempt anything you do by sending you something that doesn't work out immediately. The devil doesn't even have to oppose you. He just has to delay things. Just has to delay things. Any questions? Okay, so here's how I want to end. Seeing and hearing is both the same. Yeah. Seeing and hearing is the same. When I say see or hear, I just mean uh, God conveying his uh, thoughts. Jesus put it this way in John 5.20, I only see what I hear my father. I only, I only do what I see my father doing. But in verse 30, he says, I only speak what I hear my father speaking. Yeah. Guys, here's how we... One more question. Say that again. No, when, when the scripture that says people are blessed when they believe without seeing, it's talking about Christ. But otherwise, when we walk our daily walks, we are supposed to see what Christ wants us to see so that we can walk in it. Those scriptures are different. Yeah. 